Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the Second Amendment, and this is the Gun Guy. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, 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 bang. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, bang, bang. With Guy Ralford on 93 WIBC. And welcome to the Gun Guy Show on what turned out to be a gorgeous Saturday afternoon. We hope you're enjoying it. We hope you're exercising your Second Amendment rights. It'd be a great afternoon to be out shooting some sporting clays, doing some long-distance shooting uh, at your uh, local range, just busting some primers, whatever it is you're doing to have fun and exercise your Second Amendment rights. Uh, we hope you're doing it today. Um, hey, a little bit different agenda for today's show due to some logistical issues. We're actually not taking calls. Uh, we're pre-recording this version of the Gun Guy Show, because I am acting as we speak as the master of ceremonies at a, a fundraiser for an organization that's really near and dear to my heart. And I'll tell you what, you've heard me mention these guys before. This is the Blazer 88 Foundation. And these folks mean a lot to me. Um, they're uh, a group of veterans that have formed this organization to help uh, wounded and disabled veterans. They provide a lot of great services uh, and a lot of great funding for our American heroes that have been uh, wounded uh, or disabled in uh, the defense of our great country. And and, and, and these guys, like I said, uh, they mean a lot to me. It's a great organization. I know them personally. Uh, I do their big charity ride, their big fundraiser, uh, motorcycle ride every year. Starts in Fortville. It's fully escorted by the uh, Fortville Police Department. It's my favorite ride of the year. And they're doing something new this year, which is going on, literally started right here at 5 o'clock. Uh, out in Greenfield, it's at Adagio's uh, Banquet Hall. And I'll tell you what, the, the VIP hour is starting right now, but uh, dinner actually starts at 6. You want to show up, you want to buy a ticket uh, at the door, we'd love to see you. Uh, but again, it's a fundraiser, and it's a, a whole lot of fun for a really great organization. And uh, if you have some time, you're in the area, uh, want to stick your head in. It's it's a, it's a, a formal gala. And uh, yeah, I'm 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 wearing some version of a tux, uh, which uh, which ought to be fun. I haven't broken that thing out in a while, but I'm otherwise looking forward to it. But hey, there's a lot to talk about, as there always is here on the Gun Guy Show. Uh, one thing is that uh, uh, I, I posted on social media uh, something, and this this kind of thing catches my attention often, and that is my. Uh, uh, my alma mater, at least as to law school, Indiana University, I went to IU School of Law. They just posted that they're having a symposium, I guess is the best term for it, uh, hosted by the IU Alumni Association. And uh, it, it has to do with Second Amendment issues. And uh, as, as, as you might guess, they're... Uh, their publications or advertisements for this thing uh, kind of lean in one direction, as you might expect from a uh, an institute of higher learning like Indiana University. Um, 
and, and we've seen an awful lot of garbage coming out of an awful lot of our universities on a lot of different issues, including uh, what's going on in Israel right now. But on the Second Amendment, you know, you don't get a lot of even-handed treatment uh, when it comes to our uh, academia, uh, our uh, respected professors and whatnot at the various universities. But this this thing has uh, the sort of innocuous title. Actually, this thing, I'm just looking at it. It actually went on last night. So I don't know. I'll have to go out and see if I can find a recording for this thing. But but it had the sort of even-handed title of the courts, the Second Amendment, and public policy. And the flyer they put out for this thing uh, starts off talking about the Heller decision from 2008 that defined what it is that the Second Amendment really means. And, and it ended the debate on a lot of issues. And I'm actually going to dive into a lot of these issues uh, here on the Gun Guy Show tonight, uh, because there are a lot of arguments going on out there. In fact, one of the reasons I'm bringing this up is that in response to the, the Facebook post that was promoting this uh, symposium that went on last night at IU, uh, that, by the way, the, they had one speaker, a lady named Beth Kate, who's a uh, clinical associate professor of law and public affairs at the O'Neill School at IU. Now, that's the School of Public Affairs, not the law school. So, okay. But it says her focus is on uh, constitutional and administrative law. So, okay. But she was going to discuss, and apparently last night did discuss, and by the way, I, on the off chance anybody attended this thing, I would love to hear about it. But she was discussing what the Supreme Court has been doing uh, in the area of the Second Amendment here lately. And and I read that, and that was fascinating to me, because um, the subtitle for the promotion that IU put out on social media was called Just Shoot Me, the Supreme Court and the Second Amendment. And then it started off from there saying, uh, with with 400 mass shootings so far this year, uh, you know we have to look at at Supreme Court policy as has come down in recent years, et cetera, et cetera. And then it was asking questions like, is it a good thing or a bad thing that the Supreme Court has essentially enhanced Second Amendment protections for U.S. citizens and and limited what state and local governments can do to infringe our rights? And and it was a rhetorical question. But it started off, you know, again with this inflammatory subtitle of "Just Shoot Me." Uh, okay, come on. Uh, but then talking about there have been 400 mass shootings so far this year. And listen, there's obviously a lot of crime in the United States, and depending on how you want to define a mass shooting, you can come up with any number you want to. If a mass shooting is three or more people having been wounded. Or four or more people having been shot. Or four or more people having been shot with two people dying. Whether or not that does include also, whether or not that also includes the shooter. There's just a lot of variables. But you can come up with any number you want to. It says, well, there have been 400. I mean, have there been 400 mass shootings? If you think of a mass shooting, as most of us do, which, you know, somebody walks into a school or a mall and indiscriminately start shooting strangers and shoots a bunch of them, whatever that number might be, have there been 400 of those in the United States so far this year? Well, of course not. Not anywhere close to that. Not even a fraction. Well, some fraction of that anyway. 
And so they start off with this inflammatory rhetoric and these inflated numbers because it's going from what I call leaping from an unsubstantiated premise to a foregone conclusion. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Which is you throw out these flawed or exaggerated premises for the discussion, which simply help you reach the conclusion you were destined to come to all along which is to argue for a restriction of our constitutional freedoms under the Second Amendment. I mean, that, that's the agenda here. And as, as a lawyer, I roll my eyes at this thing a little bit. I, I, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't participate in these debates, whether they're on social media or whether I get invited to come in and be a speaker. The, the IU School of Law in Indianapolis here about, I don't know, probably three or four years ago now, they were having some similar thing. And a couple of third-year law students, it was like their third-year project to organize this thing as part of a class, I believe. And so they were supposed to put together a panel of speakers to come in and address like the Second Amendment and, and safety in Indianapolis or in Indiana, something along those lines. And they actually asked me to come in and be a speaker. And then I saw the rest of the panelists, and and they were all anti-Second Amendment people and a bunch of law students and some professors. And you hate to presuppose, make assumptions, but I was guessing they were all going to be anti-Second Amendment, and that played out exactly right. The panel I was on was not an open discussion. The panel I was on, and and it it was rigged as much as it could possibly be rigged, I will tell you, because the way they set up the panel that I was on, they had three or four different panels discussing different aspects of the principal topic, which was you know Second Amendment and gun safety, if that's a term you use. Gun safety. I don't separate gun safety or gun violence from any other kind of violence or safety. But they had different subtopics within that general agenda. And for my panel that they brought up, what they said is, well, we're gonna we're gonna ask each of you to address a particular aspect of this and answer a question. So my entire contribution, this is something I sat through for several hours, was to go up, sit on a panel, where they said, well, and now Guy Relford, we want you to answer, and I don't even remember what the question was, but it was some incredibly limited, finite, specific question that I was just supposed to address that didn't reach any of the broader issues, including the real meaning and scope of the Second Amendment, or whether or not laws that restrict our Second Amendment rights actually keep us safer, which was really what we're talking about. And some of these students gave up and gave these long, and I didn't give any kind of a presentation. They didn't ask me, say, guy, come in and tell me what you think the Second Amendment means, or how safety and and public policy are related to the exercise or the regulation, either one, of Second Amendment rights. Oh, no, they said, sit there and answer a specific question that we're going to ask you, and then shut up. As you might guess, I didn't approach it quite that way. And my answer to the little question they tried to ask me, a very limited question, was much more expansive than what they'd really planned on. But it was rigged. It was rigged from day one. And some of these students got up, and it was funny, because they decided to focus on statistics and studies. And same thing. It's just like talking about the number of mass shootings. You, you, can, you can support whatever premise you want, depending on who you go to for information. And there was this one law student who actually was one of the organizers of the thing, got up and said, 
I'll never forget this. So one study I think is really powerful, and that is, you know, people who say, well, I need to carry a gun for self-protection or to protect my family, they're really completely off base, and they're misguided, and they're living in a dream world, because one study shows that an incredibly low number and low percentage of people who are the victims of violent crime were armed at the time. And she threw up this study that said just that. It was just something like 5%. But people that are victims of violent crime were carrying a gun. So, by definition, guns are terrible at, at protecting you from violent crime. And I started laughing. I'm sitting in the audience, and I laughed out loud. And I had several of the people around me sit over and you know, look over and and, 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 and and eyeball me with a surprised look on their voice. That guy sitting there laughing. And I raised my hand, and they would not let me speak. But later on, when I did get to speak, I volunteered, which is not responsive to the very limited, narrow question they tried to ask me. I said, by the way, I have to address this one study. 5% of the victims of violent crime were carrying a gun. The whole idea of carrying a gun and being able to defend yourself and your, and your family is to not be the victim of a violent crime. You're trying to not be a data, a, a, a data point in the t- study you're talking about. So if a guy comes to me and tries to rob me, I show him I have a gun or I pull a gun. Or he tries to hurt me or my family, and I shoot him, and I never become the victim of a violent crime, I'm not a data point in the study you're discussing. And the whole purpose of carrying a gun is to not be a data point in that study. If you say only 5% of victims of violent crime were carrying a gun, what you're saying is 95% of of victims of violent crime weren't carrying a gun. And isn't that a more powerful statistic (laughs) talking about? The issue at hand. And I thought that was hilarious. But I'll tell you what, we're a little past the quarter hour. It's time to take a break. But that's what we're dealing with when we come to these sort of symposia or conferences or discussions. But we're going we're gonna to get into some of the comments. Because I went on, on this symposium that IU was having. I went on and I, made, I posted a comment on Facebook. And I said, this would be more uh, interesting and informative discussion if you offered more than one perspective. I'm a Second Amendment attorney and my... Law practice focuses on Second Amendment issues. And, of course, I didn't hear anything from my alma mater, IU. But in response to a lot of, not just my comments, but a lot of other comments about this symposium, a whole bunch of people launched into a debate about the meaning of the Second Amendment. And that got really interesting really fast. And I want to get in, and I want to debunk some of these arguments. And we'll do that here when we come back. Right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Second to none on the Second Amendment. This is the Gun Guy with Guy Relford on 93 WIPC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIPC. Uh, we hope you're enjoying the show so far. And we, by the way, I've mentioned at the top of the show, we're actually not taking calls tonight. Uh, due to the miracles of modern technology, uh, we have actually pre-recorded the show. And as I mentioned here a few minutes ago, I'm, I'm acting as the master of ceremonies uh, for the Blazer 88 Foundation. It's having its uh, annual formal gala out in Greenfield at Adagio's Banquet Hall. Looking forward to that. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we've still recorded, I think, a show you'll enjoy. And we, we appreciate you joining us. I was talking about before the break. You know, some of these, these long-standing debates, and this is what happened. I posted about this conference, or symposium, whatever you want to call it, discussion. And these people are going to go in and debate whether or not the Supreme Court's right or wrong, essentially, on recent rulings regarding the, the scope and the meaning of the Second Amendment. And what are they talking about there? Well, they're talking about the Heller decision, primarily, from 2008, 
And Heller resolved an awful lot of questions and, and, and frankly, ended, or should have, it didn't end, it should have ended, a lot of the debates about exactly that, the meaning of the Second Amendment. And, and what were some of these longstanding issues? I mean, going back generations, I mean, arguably a couple hundred years, there's been a debate about the meaning of the Second Amendment, and in particular, about the meaning of, the, of what, what, what a lot of us, in fact, the courts call the prefatory clause, the beginning of the Second Amendment that starts off a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. And, and a lot of people have, have, have looked at that and historically said, well, there you go. It's talking about a militia, and therefore, only when you're in an organized government-controlled militia, like the National Guard, does the Second Amendment confer any rights on you. And that argument has existed among, again, law professors, a lot of judges, anti-Second Amendment advocates, gun control proponents. That argument's been out there for a damn long time. And and, and a lot of them, in fact, you'll, you'll, you'll see posts where it was well settled for you know, hundreds of years that you know, the Second Amendment only applied to you if you were in a militia. That's a government-sponsored military unit, again, like today the National Guard. But where you're employed by the state and you're controlled, you're regulated by the state. And you still see that. When people go out, and, and I'll guarantee you, this, this came up. Again, I, didn't, I wasn't there, and I wasn't invited, and I sure as hell wasn't invited to speak. But at this symposium last night, I'll guarantee you, people on there going, oh, yeah, well, it's so misguided. Clearly what the founders meant was, because it starts off talking about a militia, the Second Amendment only helps you in any way, only confers any particular right on you if you're a member of a militia. Well, first of all, let's back up. The, the Supreme Court in the Heller decision, 2008, resolved that issue. So whether you like it or don't, whether you agree with it or you don't, doesn't really matter because it's the law of the land. And I'll get to that in just a minute. But let's let's even take a step back from that, and because it, it irks the hell out of me I hear, when I hear people say the Second Amendment confers a right or it gives us a right or it creates a right to keep and bear arms. Is that what it did? Absolutely not. And it's, again, the Second Amendment and, and this particular point has been has been addressed by the courts and the Supreme Court in particular. And, and we don't have to debate this. This is over. My right to defend myself, my family, my home, and my country is conferred by me by, by God. I don't, the government doesn't give me that right. And the Second Amendment sure as hell doesn't give me that right. I didn't need the Second Amendment to have a right to defend myself. And implicit within the right to defend myself is the right to be armed so as to do so. And there's no question about that. There's not even a legitimate debate about that. And the Supreme Court has confirmed it. So don't ever tell me what the Second Amendment gave me. There was a huge debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists during the founding of whether we even needed a Bill of Rights. And the, and the Federalists were saying, we don't need a Bill of Rights. We don't need to enumerate what rights need to be protected or specifically that need to be protected in the Constitution. 
because the Constitution, by design, is so limited as to the powers it gives the federal government. If we haven't given the federal government a particular enumerated power, then it doesn't have it. And if it doesn't have it, it can't exercise that power so as to infringe our rights. So if we haven't given the government the right to regulate free speech, it doesn't have the right to infringe your natural right to free speech. Period. End of story. And the anti-federalists said, well, you may be right, but we don't trust the bastards that are ever going to come into the government and become the people that have to make decisions on how to govern us. Why? Because we don't trust people. We don't trust human nature. And that's why we need a Bill of Rights. Only then was there an agreement to, yeah, okay, let's ratify the current Constitution, then come back and agree on a Bill of Rights. And I'll tell you what, we're down here at the bottom of the hour. We're going to take a break. We'll come back and we'll continue this discussion here on the Gun Guy Show tonight on 93 WIBC. The show about gun rights, gun safety, and responsible gun ownership. This is the Gun Guy with Guy Relford on 93 WIBC. And welcome back to the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. We're glad you're with us. So before the break there at the bottom of the hour, we were talking about uh, something that's just very basic to the Constitution in general and the Bill of Rights in particular. And people really need to understand this, which is the Bill of Rights doesn't give you any rights. It talks about rights you already have that are bestowed on you by the Creator and, and, and with which we are endowed by our Creator, right? I mean, that's language right out of the Declaration of Independence. And these are the same folks. People should never forget about the links and the, and the, the important interpretations of the Constitution that you can get from checking out the rest of the founding documents. And primarily here, I'm talking about the Declaration of Independence and the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers are brilliant. The Federalist Papers are essentially a lot of the same founders, talking about Hamilton and Madison and John Jay primarily, and even within that group, mainly Hamilton and Madison. But what they're doing is they're, they're, they're making a sales pitch to the country on why this newly adopted, adopted as far as the Continental Congress went, and then our first Congress, what would become our first Congress, why it ought to be ratified at the state level. So really it's a sales pitch. But in making the sales pitch, they did a lot of explanation as to why why the founders put together the form of government that they did. And again, it's the most beautiful experiment in freedom and democracy the world's ever seen. It's the longest enduring democracy in the world, in the, in, in the history of the world. I mean, people say, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, we're, we're still pretty young. What? 250 years less. Well, yeah, that's because democracies a lot of times are so poorly designed that they disintegrate. Not ours. It's just... It's, it's strong as any it's stronger than any democracy in the history of the universe and and, and the system of government they put together was brilliant but if, but a lot of the foundation for it and the motivation for it and the thinking behind it you can get not just from the Constitution but from the other founding documents and when the when the Declaration of Independence starts talking about you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. 
but among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that by their create, they're not saying, gosh, we need government to give people some rights here, otherwise they have no rights. I get into this with a U.S. congressman from Indiana who said, oh, you don't have any rights unless the government gives it to you. Bull was basically saying, well, the government decides you don't have a right, then you don't have that right. No, I still have the right. The government's just decided to infringe it. And that's why the rest of the Declaration of Independence rather becomes really important. Because I never lost the right in terms of whether or not I possessed it. Was the government successfully infringing it for some amount of time? Yes. Then what happens after that is the great American experiment. And that's addressed also right there in the Declaration of Independence. When any, any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, these ends meaning securing the natural rights possessed by men. And I say men, obviously I mean men and women. Because right after it, it talks about unalienable rights, that among these being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it says that to secure these ends, that is the protection of those rights. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. You know, when I'm told, well, you don't have any rights unless the government gives to you. No, 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 no. You are governing with my consent and the consent of the rest of the citizens of this country. And if you no longer have that consent, you may no longer govern. But they're the government. They have all the power. Well, now we're going to start getting into the reason for the Second Amendment. Because it goes on from there, talking about the consent of the governed. Then it says, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends. And again, what ends are we talking about? That is securing the unalienable rights of citizens. When any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. And to institute such new government, and institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall deem most likely to effect their safety and happiness. That's effect, as in put into place. So it says right there, you government, you, you, you govern with my consent. And where you lose my consent, you may no longer govern. And if you disagree with that, and for instance, if I don't, if I vote you out, and you simply say no, I'm not leaving, or refuse to otherwise follow the principles laid out in the form of government that we have, you have become destructive of the ends of preserving my natural rights, and it is the people's right, right, not just ability, but right, to alter or abolish that form of government. So I have natural rights, and the government's role is to actually secure and protect those rights. That's what the founders believed. And that's why the Constitution does a couple of things. It lays out our structure of government, and it gives the federal government very limited powers. And that's where the debate that I mentioned a little bit earlier comes into play, because the Federalists were saying... If we haven't given the federal government a particular enumerated power, it doesn't have that power. So there's no reason to lay out a Bill of Rights. And the Anti-Federalists were much bigger cynics. They were much more suspicious of human nature and human behavior and said, no, 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 we need to lay out some certain protections. Certain protections are so important that we need to lay them out and make it clear and implicit that they need to be protected. And that wasn't to create those rights or confer those rights. That's not what we're talking about. 
It was to protect them from infringement and make it abundantly clear. Was it redundant because we didn't give the government the power to infringe those rights to begin with? Sure. But how was the last 240-some years played out in terms of whether or not they were right in being cynical and whether or not we need that protection? Because a whole bunch of people in our current government are telling you that you don't actually have the rights that are even laid out and secured and protected in the Bill of Rights. And the Second Amendment is first on that list. So if ever there were a wise group of people in terms of their predictions and their cynicism and a bit of negativism as to human nature and the nature of government and the nature of human beings who are invested with power, the anti-federalists go to the top of the list. They win that competition because they've been dead on. We've got all these people in the government telling you that you don't actually have the rights that are spelled out in the Bill of Rights. If you care at all about the Second Amendment, that could not be more true as to that. So I'm talking about the context of the creation of the Second Amendment and what it really means. So we've, I believe, rather easily rebutted this idea that the Second Amendment confers or gives or creates some right. No, it's a natural right. It's simply protected from infringement in, in, in a perhaps a redundant way, but obviously a necessary way, given how history has played out. But what is the meaning and scope of the Second Amendment? That's the next debate. And that's what we'll get into here after we take this break. Right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Your rights, your responsibilities, your guns. This is The Gun Guy with Guy Relford on 93 WIBC. And welcome back to The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. We're glad you're with us. And it started off top of the show talking about this symposium on you know is the supreme court right or wrong in doing what it's doing and by the way if you if you if you heard that question or as i read it about this discussion that apparently went on at iu last night i mean my first reaction and perhaps yours as well was well who cares what these opinions are there's a bunch of people to get together and talk about whether the supreme court's right or the supreme court's wrong uh supreme court makes the decision it makes. And once the Supreme Court makes its decision, it's the law of the land. And you can like it or not. You can agree with it or not. And that means exactly nothing. It was hard to make that point without cussing right there, by the way. I really got to tell you, I had about four different words I can't say on the radio pop into my head. We'll just go with nothing. It means exactly nothing because they're the Supreme Court. So the fact that a bunch of academics or gun control proponents, I'm sure is the way it played out, got together in Bloomington at IU and talked about whether the Supreme Court's right or wrong is okay. All, I'm sure for them, very interesting, but it means nothing. They can disagree. They can call the Supreme Court all the names they want. But, but when you get into the substance about the discussions they went into and whether the Supreme Court, yeah, quote-unquote, right or wrong, well, what, 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 what really are they talking about? Well, again, this debate that I mentioned briefly a bit earlier about whether the prefatory clause, and I, and I, hear, I still see this all the time on social media, somebody will be talking about you know being a Second Amendment supporter and somebody will go, oh, yeah, what, what militia are you in? 
And if you're not in a militia, today meaning the National Guard, you have no right protected or conferred, you want to go that direction, by the Second Amendment. Okay, I still see that argument. Then you also see this argument over the the term well-regulated. And and I say, well, yeah, okay, if you're in a militia and you are well-regulated, meaning regulated by the government with sufficient laws to keep people safe, then you have some right protected or conferred by the Second Amendment. And this argument's been going on forever. It went on for a damn long time in the courts. But it was resolved in 2008 by U.S. versus Heller. And what was U.S. versus Heller? What was it all about? There was a law in the District of Columbia that essentially eradicated the ownership of handguns. And people come in and they want to they want to debate that and say, "Oh no, it 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 didn't eliminate handguns. It was just a license requirement." Well, yeah, you had to even to even have a handgun in your home. you had to get a license from the government, from the District of Columbia, even to have one in your home. And guess what? Several years before this decision, they just quit issuing licenses for handgun completely. So it was a de facto ban on the possession of handguns because you couldn't own one without a license and you couldn't get a license. Aren't they cute? And their scheme to infringe your Second Amendment rights. But then separately, there was a law that said if you had any other firearm in your home, it had to be unloaded and locked up or completely disassembled. Meaning, it was completely useless to you as a means of self-defense. So look at there. What have they now done to your Second Amendment rights? But this ends up going up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled in, a, in, in several different ways and very, very important ways, and they ended a lot of these debates. And, and now when I see these debates pop out on social media, and again, they popped out in the comments about this IU conference that went on last night. Because people were, were going on, you know, these Second Amendment supporters were on there, and again, the same old crap you always see. People being adversarial to our Second Amendment rights, saying, well, what militia are you in? Well, people always forget about the regulated part. All we're talking about is regulating your right. There's nothing wrong with that. That's why we need common sense gun control regulations, and it's right there in the Second Amendment. Well, we don't have to debate that anymore. And, I, and, and really, as, as, as Second Amendment advocates or proponents or just people who who exercise or respect your own gun rights and, and, and those of others, we need to take a lesson here. We just need to quit debating the same old crap. Because it's law of the land. It's been resolved. The Supreme Court has has ruled. Now, someday, would some different court come along and rule in a different way? Well, sure, perhaps, I suppose. You never know. Democrats just completely take control and they stack the court or a bunch of the justices who voted in favor of Heller or more recently the Bruin case, which I'll get into here in a minute, they die off or they retire and they get replaced by people who have a much more limited view of your constitutional freedoms, including under the Second Amendment, then yeah, this could change. But today, and for the foreseeable future, I fully believe for my lifetime, but I'm an old guy, we don't have to debate this anymore. It's over. It's done. And that's what I always say. I'll say, I don't know why you guys are 
I always use the word regurgitate. I don't know why you guys are regurgitating these some old tired arguments that have been squarely rejected by the Supreme Court. I don't have to rebut your argument about the meaning of the term well-regulated or the, or the, the meaning of the inclusion of, of well-regulated militia within the prefatory clause of the Second Amendment because the Supreme Court has ruled. It's over. It's done. So now if you just want to whine that the Supreme Court was wrong, that's great. But direct that at the Supreme Court. I don't have to address it. It's not on my list of concerns. And that's exactly what I say. A lot of times I'll just post the link to Heller v. D.C. It's a long decision. You know, you're going to have to have a little patience and read through it, but you can figure all this out. What does well-regulated mean? Does it mean regulated by the government? Does it mean regulated by laws? Statutes and regulations? No. It means nothing more than properly trained and equipped. Like a well-regulated clock keeps proper time. And it's a, it's a two-sentence section of the opinion. It just goes, no. It means nothing more than it's, it's trained and equipped to do its job. Period, end of story. And it cites historical examples as to how we know that's how the founders used the term well-regulated. So that debate's over. Somebody says, oh, this means we need more regulations. No, it doesn't. I win, you lose. <laughs> Sorry. But then what about this idea of a militia? Well, if you're not in an organized militia, the Second Amendment does nothing for you. Supreme Court, this is, this is where they perhaps spent uh, a bulk of its, of its decision on any given issue. It goes into a lot of different issues because it also goes into scope of the right. And, how, and, and what arms we're talking about when we talk about the right to keep and bear arms. But they spent a lot of time debunking this idea that if you're not in the military, you have no protection under the Second Amendment. And they made it very clear that the way the founders envisioned this country functioning was that we needed a people's militia comprised of the whole of the body. It was really all able-bodied men. If you start digging through some additional documents, they start talking about men between 18 and 45. Today, it would be branched out well beyond men. It would be men and women, able-bodied, of a certain age, who could be called upon to defend this country. And yes, it was necessary to the security of a free state to have that militia available to us to defend the security and the freedom of this state, and I don't mean the individual states, like the then 13 states or today the 50 states. The state as in the entire politic, the entire country. And to do so, those folks had to be armed. But they, that's because they had arms in their home anyway for self-defense, for hunting. And as, if, worse, if push came to shove as a means of resisting a tyrannical government. But the idea was the whole of the body of the people could be called up with their arms that they already had at home to defend the security and the freedom of this country. That was the idea. We're coming up on the top of the hour. We're going to cut it off here. we come back, we'll talk more about why it is that we're talking about the whole of the body of the people, not membership in a particular political or, or, excuse me, a particular military organization. And then what else the Heller decision has meant and how we don't have to 
engage in some of these silly debates. You can thumb your nose or whatever other gesture you'd like to commit to and say, this is resolved, this is over, have a nice day. Right now we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the Second Amendment, and this is The Gun Guy. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, 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 bang. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, bang, bang. With Guy Ralford on 93 WIBC. And welcome back for hour number two of the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. We're getting a little historical, getting a little constitutional in the discussion here this evening. And again, I was sort of motivated to do this by a lot of the debates. And it wasn't just in the context of this IU symposium that apparently went on last night. And I really am going to go out and try to find this thing. I, I I've kind of forgot the date. I was just looking at the link here at the top of the show and realized it actually went on last night. I, of course, was not invited to speak or otherwise, which is uh, about as shocking as the sun coming up this morning. But, uh, you know, I just I want to I want to just put an end to some of these debates in terms of I, we don't need. Those of us who, who respect and, and, and and or exercise Second Amendment rights, we don't need to involve ourselves in these debates. We can shut them off. They're resolved. They're over. No, I don't need to be in a militia. In the 1791 sense, that's the year the Second Amendment was ratified, I am in the militia because I'm the whole of the body of the people. I don't know, there's an argument I'm too old, I'm well beyond 45. (laughs) But the idea is the whole of the body of the people were armed at home. And they, they weren't just armed so that they could be called up to participate in the militia to defend the security and the freedom of this great country. They were armed at home because they wanted to be able to defend their homes and their families. That was an integral part. Supreme Court has ruled on this. Self-defense is a part of the Second Amendment. You hear this current president say, you don't need an AR-15 to hunt. Second Amendment's not about hunting, Mr. President. It, 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 It certainly, the Second Amendment envisioned and to some fraction to some component of the motivation for it realized people needed arms to put food on the table but it's not certainly not limited to that and self-defense is the central component of the motivation for the founders including the second amendment in the constitution that is also included right there in the heller decision And anybody wants to wants to try to limit you to say you don't need this, that, or the other firearm for hunting, that is not even worthy of a response. Second Amendment isn't about hunting. It's much more about self-defense and defending yourself from a tyrannical government than it is about hunting. The, the famous midnight ride of Paul Revere He's talking about the colonists need to grab their arms and be prepared to begin the defense of this fledgling infant country. Because the British were coming, the regulars were out is much more likely a thing for him to have been saying, because 
everybody was British back then. But the Redcoats were out. The, the regular army was out. But when he rode through the countryside and he was warning the citizens essentially to arm themselves and make ready. It's calling upon the minute men, right? Because they could be ready in a minute to participate in their local, yes, militia to stand up against tyranny. But in riding through the countryside, he did not ride through saying the deer are coming, the deer are coming. It's not what we're talking about here. Is it implicit? Is it included? Sure. And the Heller decision, looking at the whole historical context and doing a very deep dive into the founding and the, and the documents we have surrounding it, concluded that's part of it, but it's not the principal motivation. It's not what we're talking about here. And that's why they wanted the people to be armed, the whole of the body of the people, including you and me. So, yeah, in the 1791 sense, I am in the militia. I don't need to put on camo and run around in the woods with a group of other guys. If you do that and you train that way, God bless you. Good for you. But I can be called upon in the sense of the the meaning of the Second Amendment to, to friend the security of a free state. Two words, security of a free state. Do we want the militia, the people, the whole, the body of the people to be stand, to be able to stand up right next to a standing army and defend this country from foreign invaders like they did against the British, not only in the War for Independence, but in 1812? Sure we did. That's where the security of a free state comes from. But the word free is in there for a reason which is to be able to stand up to a tyrannical government. And this is the other debate. People will pop, pipe up all the time. And I just saw this one. In fact, I responded to this one. Somebody said, anybody would have to be an idiot to believe that the Second Amendment means or intended for people to be able to stand up to the government because here you are putting it into a document that creates a government. You wouldn't be creating a government through the, the, the drafting and, and the ratification of the Constitution and in the same document put it in a means to destroy that same government. It's absurd, was the post I saw, to believe that you would include a means of opposing the government in a document that creates that same government. And, you know, it just may be on a visceral reaction, on a gut-level reaction. You may listen to that and go, well, hold on. That, make me, that makes some sense. <laughs> not, not until you get into the rest of the founding documents. Because go back to the discussion I, I put in the Declaration of Independence. The, the, the discussion I had on, on, on the language of the Declaration of Independence. And these are the same folks. Now, Jefferson was a primary author of the Declaration of Independence. Madison was the primary author of the Second Amendment. But these folks worked hand in hand. They're all there. They're all participating, whether the Continental Congress or otherwise. And we're of like mind on these issues. And it's interesting because, yes, why would they secure the right to bear arms in the Second Amendment in the same document that create is creating a, do a document, excuse me, creating a government, 
goes right back to the language I mentioned earlier in the Declaration of Independence, that to secure these ends, that is, protecting unalienable rights, among these being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To secure these ends, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. Now, interesting, they use the term right of the people. So, if my government that I've helped establish, again, governments are established among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. So I have consented to a particular form of government, just exactly as would happen if our Constitution were to be ratified by the states, which it was. So now I've created a form of government, or in the terms of the Declaration, instituted a form of government. Great. And the Constitution that's out there to be ratified gets ratified. So, yes, it's created a form of government. People say, oh, well, it would never put something in there that would allow people to oppose that same government when you're creating a government. Really? What's the next line? Or what is that line I just mentioned, I should say, of the Declaration of Independence said? However, when any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. And they use the same phrase, right of the people. So, hold on. Yes, I'm creating a government. Yes, that form of government in the form of our Constitution, has been ratified. However, I have the reserve clause. I have the exit clause. <laughs> I have the escape clause of the Second Amendment, which says, yes, we're creating this form of government right here within this document, within the Constitution of the United States of America. But if this form of government, either because of the people that we've chosen to govern or because of defects within the system of government we yet have yet, have not yet identified, being a completely new experiment, never been tried before in the history of the world, if this form of government were to become destructive of the ends of securing the natural rights of the people, then hell yes, the people shall have the right to alter or abolish it. The right of the people to alter or abolish a tyrannical government, just like the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. You don't think those two things go together? You think that's a coincidence they use that same phrase, right of the people to alter or abolish a tyrannical government, and the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed? Of course they go together. They go together perfectly. It's hand in glove. And that's why. that's exactly why they put it in there. Because these people that were establishing a government didn't trust the government. Keep in mind, that's why they're putting the Bill of Rights in together to begin with, because they don't trust the government to limit itself. And God, wasn't this prescient? Wasn't this the best prediction in the history of the universe? Which is, we don't trust the government to limit itself to the enumerated powers we've put in the Constitution. The anti-federalists won that debate, and thank God they did. And frankly, I wish they'd been more cynical and more paranoid about the attempts of the federal government to overreach the enumerated powers and to exceed the enumerated powers they laid out in the Constitution. Because God knows we need it. Including this absurd reality we have today, which we've created this whole fourth body of government in the form of regulatory agencies that we've given an ungodly amount of power to that can create rules, that can interpret their own rules. That's legislative and, and, and judicial right there together as being part of the executive branch. Holy smokes. What happened to separation of powers? So they were right to be cynical. They were right to be paranoid. 
And that's exactly why they put the limitations they did in the Bill of Rights. So that's exactly why they put in the ability to stand up to a tyrannical government in the same document that creates the government. That's the context of exactly the discussion we're talking about and why we they elected to have, and they won the debate on whether we needed a Bill of Rights at all. And thank God they did. And with that, I'll tell you what, we're a little past the quarter hour. We're taking a break. We'll be right back with the next segment of The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Now you've got a gun guy. Guy Relford on 93 WIBC. Hey, welcome back to The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Glad you're with us. So, yeah, any debate about whether the Second Amendment was created and, and, uh, and adopted by the founders and ratified by the states, I can put an end to that debate. At least we should have. I'm sure I'm sure that debate will rage on because people don't care what the Supreme Court is ruled because, oh, by the way, the Heller decision addressed exactly that point as well. Is, is, is there were pre- for three primary reasons that the founders wanted the citizens to be armed. This is right in the opinion. It says, yeah, if there were no standing army, because keep in mind, the beginning, a lot of folks didn't want a standing army. Why? Because it can be used by the government to impose tyranny. That's why we need a militia. But secondly, they, all, they, they always left open the idea that we could have a standing army, obviously, and soon found the need to have one, particularly with the British coming back in 1812. But realizing that we may very likely have a standing army, we still wanted the militia to be able to stand up next to them, just like they did next to the Continental Army in, in the War for Independence. That's why I, I, every every year on the 4th of July, my wife and I watch The Patriot. <laughs> and you talk about a great depiction of the militia. That's how it worked, and that's how the founders wanted it to work because of exactly that experience. But secondly, they wanted people to be able to have arms in their home for self-defense. And lastly, a trained and equipped and armed populace of the people could stand up to a tyrannical government. And it's right in the Heller decision. And this is after a very deep drill, as I mentioned. On the on the historical documents going into the formation of, of, of this country and the, the drafting and the, uh, the intent behind our founding documents, including the Constitution, including the Bill of Rights, and including the Second Amendment. And it's a great scholarly discussion. I mean, a great historical discussion. I think it's really interesting really fast, and you really ought to read. Just Google D.C. versus Heller 2008. It'll pop right up. And it's a bit of a long read, but it's definitely worth reading. But then that doesn't put an end, unfortunately. Or I don't know. There can be a lot of entertainment in this, too. Particularly when you understand the rulings of the Supreme Court and you understand the subject matter generally. You can have some fun with these people who either want to ignore what the Supreme Court has ruled or want to ignore reality and logic on top of that. Because what's the other longstanding debate you keep hearing? How many times have I seen this posted or I've had people say to me, the Second Amendment was, was written at a time when there were just muskets so great. The Second Amendment protects your right to have a musket. 
I've seen that thousands of times. Well, again, that, that's an issue that's been resolved more than once now by the Supreme Court. In Heller, they talked about what arms are contemplated within the arms that people can keep and bear, having the right to do so, that shall not be infringed. Again, we're talking about a right that's protected, but what, but 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 does that mean any and all firearms at any time? A lot of people would say the founders would say yes. They'd say if the military had it, if a standing army could have it, if foreign governments had it, then hell yeah, we wanted our militia to have it too. I think if our founders could come back and give us advice on any issue, I think they would look at it that way. Now, they may look at it this way and say, all right, we need to control the dissemination of nuclear weapons. And perhaps a few others, but I think a lot of the founders would have said, well, hell, our meaning of the militia means they can stand up to the standing army. So the standing army has F-22s and drones and and any number of other sophisticated weapons, and that's exactly what we want the militia to have as well. But obviously, given modern times, courts weren't willing to go that far. So what did the Heller decision say? What did the court say in that decision? It says specifically, it's not limited to those weapons that were in existence at the time of the founding. So they, they, the whole, great, you can have a musket theory, was thrown out the window. And by the way, just basic logic, consider this for a moment. I mean, do you have a First Amendment right to get on the internet and post what you want to post? Well, of course you do. Does the Fourth Amendment protect you from the FBI flying a... a a drone in through your window to spy on what you're doing. Well, of course it does. Or using satellites or other sophisticated technology to spy on you with no probable cause and no warrant. Well, of course it does. Nobody says a First Amendment's written, excuse me, is limited to what you write on parchment with a quill. Or you can crank out with a printing press such that it existed... In 1791, nobody even makes that argument. So you can't make that argument within the Second Amendment. But the Supreme Court, again, has resolved the issue. Don't have to resolve it. Don't have to discuss. Don't have to debate it. A subsequent decision, Caetano, out of Massachusetts, I believe, a lady had a stun gun. Massachusetts said you can't have a stun gun. She appealed that. What did the Supreme Court, went all the way to the Supreme Court and said, specifically, not limited to weapons that were in existence at the time of the founding. Overdone. We're through. Don't have to debate it. We'll keep going, get into some of these other debates when we come back. We're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. He's a Second Amendment attorney. He's an NRA certified firearms instructor. He's the gun guy. Guy Relford on 93 WIBC. Welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. I'm sort of debunking some of these ridiculous arguments that that we keep seeing. And one of those, then and maybe the most common, just to, you know, where where people are are arguing for limitations on particular firearms or classes of firearms, you know, people that want to advocate for a so-called assault weapon ban, again, that's a made up political term. That really it means that it really is is intended to to refer to and include 
most commonly owned rifles in America. That's semi-automatic rifles with detachable magazines is essentially how it gets defined. And they are, in fact, the most commonly owned rifles in America. The AR-15 in particular is the most commonly owned rifle in America. And and the numbers are off the charts. I mean, I saw numbers just a few years ago that were talking about 15 to 20 million of them in the U.S., and I guarantee it's well beyond that. And every time they talk more about banning them, what happens? People go out and buy more of them. There's nothing like promoting sales than when you start talking about banning something, and we've seen it repeatedly in history, certainly in, in the last generation. But an argument that gets made in that context a lot, and I've gone back and forth as to whether I even address this in all seriousness, um, whether, whether, whether I'm even willing to engage because it's, it's a silly argument. And people say there ought to be a ban on, what do you want to say, assault weapon. Again, that term is repugnant to me. Uh, or or particular rifles like AR-15s and AK-47s. People say that's because you don't need one to defend your home or to go hunting with. You don't need one. Therefore, we ought to be able to ban them. So how, how do you respond to that? People say, well, you don't need that. Or we ought to be able to ban high-capacity magazines because you don't need more than one or two shots to defend yourself. And then even among gun owners, what do, you, what, do you, what do you hear all the time? You hear, well, you know, if you, if, you can't, if you can't defend yourself from a robbery or a, a break-in with two or three shots, you need to go back to the range and learn how to shoot. You clearly are a lousy shot. Let's stick with that one for a minute because I have fun with that one. People look at me. I, hell, I've, I've been an instructor for 30 years. I've been a competitive shooter. I know quite a few folks around that are better shots than me, but I ain't all bad. Do I consider myself substantially better than average in terms of marksmanship? Yeah, I do. Again, I daily encounter people and, and have good friends that are better than me. But I'm not all that bad. People look at me. God, well, <laughs> You want a 15-round magazine in your gun? Handgun. Gun you carry for self-defense or 12, whatever the number. If you need that many rounds, you're a lousy shot. Is that even a true statement? Well, let's dissect that a little bit because we're talking about ammo capacity right now. And we'll shift over to the classes of firearms through the rest of the show. But ammo capacity. I'll say. Let me, let me give you a really important example. And it's something that you know happened right here in Indiana that I had, after the fact anyway, some involvement in, which is the attempted mass shooting at the Greenwood Park Mall. And as you know, if you listen to this show, the hero at the Greenwood Park Mall back July seventeenth, twenty twenty two, was Elijah Dickin, and Eli and his family. As, as that investigation began right after the shooting, really the same night, hired me to be Eli's lawyer. Not because they really thought he was going to get prosecuted for anything. He's a hero. He saved countless, countless lives and acted unbelievably, heroically, and effectively 
to stop that mass shooting. Now, three innocent people lost their lives, and we don't ever want to lose track of that because that's a big deal. Yes, three innocent people lost their lives, but when the shooter was stopped by Eli, yeah, he had an AR-15. He still had over 100 rounds of ammo on him. He had three loaded 30-round AR mags and a chest rig when he went down and had several rounds still in the magazine and the gun in a busy mall at closing time in Greenwood, a very busy mall at the time in the food court. How many people could that guy have killed? And the police, again, Chief James Eisen down there in Greenwood, who, who I got to be friends with and I have a lot of respect for. I thought he did a great job throughout the investigation. He was in a tough spot, a lot of pressure, and I thought he performed great. And the, the detectives down there and all the, the, the assistant chief that I met, I, I just thought they did a fabulous job with the whole thing. And I thought they were very, very fair to Eli. Their investigation was very professional. I, they took their time. They got it right. And, uh, and I just thought they did a fabulous job. But as I got involved in that, and, and, and I was lucky enough to get to see the security tape, and that was just by the graciousness of the Greenwood Police Department. As Eli's lawyer, they let me see it. And, and, and you may know some of those details. I've seen some of them kind of misportrayed. People out there on the Internet are still doing the Dickon drill. And, and that's because that entire shooting lasted 15 seconds. That is, from the time the bad guy came out and started firing shots and, yeah, killed three innocent people. And actually, uh, another uh, little girl uh, caught, uh, I think, some uh, a fragment uh, in her legs. I, I wounded one, you would say. But from the time he started shooting innocent people to the time Eli stopped the fight by shooting him was 15 seconds. Entire duration. Unbelievable. And Eli started shooting the bad guy from 45 yards away, 43. I lasered it. I was there. He started shooting from a brace position on top of a tall mall trash can that was right next to a column, which gave Eli some cover as well, which was really, really smart. And he was 43 yards away with a Glock 19, a compact handgun. Eli shot four times from 43 yards, made two hits. 43 yards, not feet, with a handgun, a compact, no red dot. No optic. He actually had somewhat torn up factory sights. He'd been in a little motorcycle mishap where he went down on his bike, slid on his right hip with a gun and a holster, and actually chewed his sights up, both front and back. So he had somewhat chewed up factory sights on a Glock 19, made two out of four hits from 43 yards. Then he advanced to about 25 yards and freehand, Unsupported, shot four more, four more times, hit all four. Then he closed to a shorter distance, about 15, 20 feet, and fired his last two shots and ended the threat. So he made eight out of ten shots, starting at 43 yards. And it was funny, I, I had a conversation with Chief Eisen, and he said, yeah, he's, he goes, I, I should, and I, don't let me put words in Chief Eisen's mouth, but, but I'm paraphrasing, but essentially he said, yeah, I had my SWAT team watch this security video, and I asked the whole members, all the members of my SWAT team, could you guys have made all those shots? You know, and there was some whistling and, you know, looking at the ceiling. 
<laughs> I think they were being humble, and I'm sure some of those guys, uh, or maybe all, could could make most, if not all, those shots. But what I'm saying is that was one bad guy, and it took Eli 10 shots. And with remarkable, incredible marksmanship. Part of that is because handguns are notoriously bad fight stoppers. And we have an awful lot of examples of people out there, bad guys, getting shot a lot of times, or even good guys getting shot a lot of times, who are still able to return fire and deliver deadly force. So they're not good fight stoppers to begin with. In a high-stress environment, your marksmanship's going to suffer. Now, Eli's didn't. But now, let's say you're not as incredibly talented and skilled or blessed as Eli was in that particular situation, and you're not as good a shot. Now there's more than one bad guy. Now there's three guys with ARs, and you had to fight or die. And somebody's going to look at you and say, well, if you need more than two or three rounds, guy, to stop that threat, then you're not a very good shot. Bull. That's ludicrous. That's silly. Now, there are some statistics that support the idea that the most common self-defense shootings do not take a lot of rounds. I'll go into that here when we take the, after we take this break. But we'll address this bottom line on this need argument. You don't need that many rounds or you don't need that type of firearm. And we'll do that here in this next segment to wrap up this edition of The Gun Guy Show. Right now we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Second to none on the Second Amendment. This is The Gun Guy with Guy Relford on 93 WIBC. And welcome back to the final segment of The Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. We're wrapping up by talking about this discussion of need. And, uh, and you know, when I engage in that debate, or at least I did it historically, I always started off by being a bit of a smartass and saying, well, you know, interestingly enough, the Second Amendment's contained in something we call the Bill of Rights. And you might want to take notice of the fact it's not called the Bill of Needs. And if I have a right to do something, and the Supreme Court in the Heller decision said, yeah, I have a protected right to keep and bear those arms, and this is how they define the scope of the Second Amendment, that are commonly used for lawful purposes by U.S. citizens. And so if it meets that test, and I've decided I need it as the sole person who gets to make that decision, the fact that you don't think I need a particular firearm, or for that matter, that I don't need a particular number of rounds, means exactly this. You can pound sand. It doesn't make any difference to me. You don't need that. Or the people want me to justify. Why do you need an AR-15? And any time the government is successful, this is a really, really important point. Anytime the government is successful in convincing you, or the populace in general, that they only have a right if they need to exercise that right. You've lost that right. Because who gets to decide whether you have a sufficient need? Government does. And that's exactly why, for instance, in the more recent Supreme Court decision, the Braun case, the Bruin, I should say, excuse me, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, they addressed New York's licensing scheme. New York said you can only have a handgun license if you have a particular need for self-defense in public. 
because they weren't issuing handgun licenses to carry a handgun in public unless you, you, you could show some ex- existential threat. The, oh, yeah, right now I am under this threat to my safety. Not just I live in a bad neighborhood or I want to have the general ability to defend myself and my family. Oh, no, I basically say a bad guy's after me now. <laughs> it was about that bad. And the government got to sit back and say, mm, I think you have a sufficient need to carry a handgun, but the whole rest of you don't. And the Supreme Court said very emphatically, when the government can decide whether you get to exercise a constitutionally protected freedom based on need, they have changed a right into a privilege granted by the government, as opposed to an unalienable right granted to you by God. And how important a distinction is that? So if we, if we allow ourselves to get baited into this discussion of only having a right because we need to exercise that right, we're, we're, giving, up, we're giving up high ground in the debate. We're accepting a premise that's going to lead to the loss of the argument at the end of the day, and certainly the loss of the right. And you know, and there's a great quote, and you and you see this come out every now and then. But there, there was a guy all the way back from actually England, William Pitt, who dealt this dealt with this idea that freedoms are based on need. And, it's a, and I love this quote, and I've, I've, I've used this so often over the years. His quote is, necess- no, excuse me, butchered that. His quote is, necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. Let me start that over. Necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. It is the argument of tyrants. It is the creed of slaves. So just stop there a minute. What? What? what What's he saying? He's just saying that. If you don't need something, and, and oh, by the way, implicit in that is if the government gets to decide whether you have a sufficient need to exercise a right, exactly as the Bruin decision says, it's no longer a right. So I don't have to discuss whether or not I have a need for a particular form of firearm. Now, do I have a suppressed AR-15, SBR, short-barreled rifle, next to my bed? Yeah, it has suitable ammo in it for home defense. It's suppressed, which is nice in an indoor environment. It's got a short barrel so I can navigate hallways, doorways, stairs, and otherwise if I need to and if I determine that's prudent under the circumstances. And it's the appropriate firearm, weapon I've chosen to defend my home. And whether anybody agrees with me or not that I need that particular firearm, Whatever anyone's opinion is on that topic, I could literally not care less. It is impossible for me to care less. It means nothing to me. Because I don't have to win that argument. I don't even have to engage in that argument. You don't need that. You don't need that to hunt ducks. <laughs> Your mouth is moving. It's like the old Charlie Brown commercials. Like, wow, wow, wow. So what? And you, you apply the Heller test, commonly used for lawful purposes. It's the most commonly used rifle in America. It's a commonly owned rifle in America. I don't have to convince anybody what my need is. 
And I actually had that debate here on WIBC. Brian Baker, and I don't know if Brian is around. I know he lives in Atlanta, but he, I think he still fills in uh, over the phone a few times uh, remotely um, for other hosts and whatnot. Brian's a good guy. I like Brian. But we were co-hosting, I think, on Hammer and Nigel. Or one of us, maybe I was a guest and he was co-hosting or the other way around. I don't remember. But he went into this, you don't need this. And I look at him and I said, Brian, I'll convince you what I need. If I have a right to do something, I could care less whether you think I have a right to it. And explained why. And actually, believe it or not, this very rarely happens in this context. Brian came around and publicly agreed with me and said he had that one wrong. But what we've done, and I hope you've enjoyed it, we've gone through some of these tired, obsolete arguments as to what we do or don't have in terms of those rights protected, not conferred, protected by the Second Amendment. And we, as, as, as Second Amendment advocates, we're people that respect our, you know, our constitutional rights and those of others, need to have a better understanding of how to address these things because there's e- there are easy arguments out there. And we can tell people exactly how and why they can pound sand when they try to argue for the limitation of our constitutional freedom. And with that, I'll, we'll call it quits here on this edition of The Gun Guy Show. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you come back next week. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC.